Well, it's great to be here with you. It's great to be worshiping with you. And uh, man, we serve an amazing God, amen? Powerful God. Did you see these storms rolling in last night? That was some amazing stuff. We went outside. I'm like, honey, you got to come out. We got to watch this. And uh, we sat down in the back patio and just watched these huge black clouds roll in and kind of come up from the southwest. And uh, just amazing to look at the power in it. All of a sudden, the wind hit and uh, it was right on the edge of the front. I think the temperature dropped 15 degrees in about four minutes. We're sitting out there in shorts and we're like, oh man, now it's freezing out here. Right? And we watched the rain coming up. As soon as we felt a few drops, jumped inside, and then it all cut loose. And uh, man, that isn't even beginning to be the taste of the power of our God. And uh, he is huge. He is vast. He is almighty, and he's in charge. And we worship him with all we've got. And we're worshiping him and launching a new uh, series here today, a series called White Hot Church. Like, what does it mean to be a church on fire? What does it mean that we are actually getting uh, kind of a closeness with our God and he is doing something with us and we are just like the charcoals on a grill that get drawn together, they turn white hot, like, so he's doing that with us. And how does that work? How does that go down? Man, I love that we are a church on fire. I love that many are coming in and tasting of that fire. Let's explain a little bit of where it comes from, where we're going to, and how our God gets all the glory. And all of God's people said. And uh, so, hey, here's some words for you. A white hot church will be Christ-purposed. At the very center, it will be all about him. Christ-purposed. We'll be spirit-empowered, God-indwelt, love-motivated, life-changing. That's where we're headed, man. Uh, Christ-purposed, spirit-empowered, God-indwelt, uh, love-motivated, life-changing. And that's a church on fire. And uh, we talked last week, we announced a little bit and told you that we were going to be doing a third service. And uh, we're rolling this third service out. For those of you who are maybe just catching this for the first time right now, we're going to be rolling a third service out Sunday afternoons, 4.30 p.m., starting probably in October is our thought right now. And so we're looking to build core team. And as we announced, we've already gotten a number of families interested in saying they're considering that and a bunch of third shift families that are all excited about it and praise God for that. Man, just keep praying. What does God have for us? And uh, should maybe we be a part of that? There should be some families in this place right here. They're like, yeah, we need to be going after helping plant that service. I'm excited to be a part of it. Man, we'd love to have you join with us on the core team. Just so it's clear, we will be going after a church that is white, hot, on fire. This stuff we're talking about now, this is what's going to be in all three of our services. By the way, all those services will be the same. They will all have the same content, same music, same children's programming, all that, all right? So looking forward to going after this in huge measure. The next five weeks, we're going to be taking a pretty deep look at a white-hot church, a church on fire. Uh, Lord, may we please be that church. That's where we're headed, all right? Today, Christ's purpose. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, as we talk about how to be Christ-purposed. And uh, the first point, listen to the Father. Worship Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. If we're going to be on fire, we're going to need to listen to the Father. 
worship Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what the Father's calling us to, and this is what we need to be all about, worshiping Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. All right, here we go, starting in verse 13. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter answers. Let's just stop there for a moment. So we're going to back the truck up right to the top here and let's walk it through. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples a question. See, when we're reading this and we open up the scripture, we start reading through, it's pretty easy to be like, yeah, I can barely pronounce that word. Let's move on, right? And so we see the name of this town. We don't really know what it means. We just kind of move forward. And, and a lot of times we can miss the deeper statement that's being made. And so just a little bit of fact about this town called Caesarea Philippi. And uh, just so you know, this was a place that was often gone to by people on vacation. This was a place who, where they took some break to get away to kind of get some downtime. In fact, we put some pictures together here just so you could get a glimpse of what it sort of looks like. You can sort of see the green, the lush. You can see the cave with the water just pouring out of it. And this ends up spilling down into the Jordan. There's this really nice, relaxing area that people used to get away to for vacation, right? But it was more than that. If you look to the right-hand side, you see those little inlets in the wall and stuff? Yeah, that's where they put idols. And they used to worship a variety of different idols, Caesarea Philippi was this place people went to to relax and get some downtime, but it was more than that. It was a place where people went to dig deep into idolatry and selfishness and sin. There was a massive amount of sexual sin. There was a horrid amount of sin towards the god Baal and the god Pan. Those were two of the huge gods that were worshipped here. In fact, for Baal, they used to um, do a lot of child sacrifice at this place. Caesarea Philippi was so bad that, in fact, um, no good Jew would go there, okay? It was that bad. In fact, you might want to say the nickname of it could be something like Sin City, right? Have we heard of a place like that? Like, we've got a place like that in our own United States where people go to get away, and if you like the sun and the heat, and it's a beautiful place for you, and then, you know, what happens there? Stays there, right? That whole statement about Sin City as we go drink deep of ourselves. And uh, that's a lot of what this place was. Some massive sin going on. We're going to talk a little bit more about it as we move forward. Just know this, Caesarea Philippi, about 30 miles out of the way from where they were. So there's a moment where Jesus had to be like, okay, boys, let's go. And somebody's like, hey, where are we going? He's like, well, we're going to Caesarea Philippi. What? What are we going up there for? Do you know how far away that is? Do you understand how evil that is? Do you know what's so, right? They were heading off to a place that really had very little explanation for why to go to. We're going to see today why he went there, all right? So just hang on to that. Caesarea Philippi, it's important, the place. It's a big deal. All right, here we go. It says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is. 
Who do people say that the Son of Man is? This phrase, Son of Man, this is a phrase that's used for a prophet or a key individual in the meeting out of God's wrath and mercy. You'll see it applied to several different people. In fact, Ezekiel was called the Son of Man, and Daniel at one point, there's a reference to Son of Man for him. Uh, But Jesus Christ is alluding to a very specific passage here. He began to call himself the Son of Man multiple times over within Matthew. He calls himself the Son of Man. In fact, if you go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it to you. Daniel 7, verse 13, this is Daniel talking. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, which means, check it out, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. The son of man who comes down and then goes back up to the ancient of days. The son of man, this is the Messiah. This is the the hoped for one, the Christ the anointed one, the one who would bring salvation for Israel. This is the one they've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And Jesus started calling himself the son of man. So they knew at least he was some sort of prophet and maybe even more. Maybe this Messiah, the Christ. And uh, so Jesus says, who do people say that the son of man is? And they grasped it. They knew what he was talking about. They knew he was talking about himself. And so they gave an answer. They said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Something we need to notice about all these guys. First of all, they're all men. They're all human beings, right? So, So he hasn't said, well, they're saying you're God. Like That's not what's being said. Who do they say the Son of Man is? Well, they're, they're saying men. Everybody just say they're saying men. They're saying men. They're given the list of men. In fact, not just men, but men who have died men. Prophets who may come back to life. So they're knowing there's something special or unique about the guy. Maybe this is a prophet who is somehow resurrected. And they start naming off some big names. It could be they also were saying other things. And the disciples only wanted to tell them the positive things. We're not quite sure. But they list off some of these Prophet names, John the Baptist, Elijah, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And uh, yeah, they're giving a list here, uh, a list of dead prophets, and that maybe Jesus is one of those. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Who are you saying I am? You can only imagine how quiet it got as they're wrestling themselves with who this Jesus is. They're barely understanding some of what he's asking them to do along the way. And so there's this moment, who do you say that I am? Now notice in the beginning there, it says, they said, they had an answer. Oh, well, you know, and they're all kind of kicking in answers, right? Who do you say? And that's that moment where everybody's kind of like, step back a little bit. I'm sure I'm going to answer this, right? Simon Peter replied, well, of course he will, right? This is the guy who loves to just stand up and make it happen. Mr. Impetuous, right? I got an answer. You want an answer? I'll give you an answer. And uh, Simon Peter, but he has more than impetuousness on mind. Listen to what he says. Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, man, we better grasp 
the intensity of that announcement. You are the Messiah. You are the hoped for one. You are the anointed one for Israel that we have been waiting for. You are the Christ. That's who you are. You are the son of the living God. Just so you know, that word living has the word zoe in it, eternal life. You are the son of the living God. With you, there is eternal life. God the Father, yes, eternal. And now you, eternal as well. And you are our hope. And your throne will reign for all eternity. That's who you are. That's Simon Peter's answer. While all the rest of the disciples are standing there quietly. Watching onward, looking, listening, and seeing what happens. He says, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Blessed are you. Like, if we were to set it in modern day times, it would have gone like this. Dude, got something good going on with you, I can tell. Blessed are you. Like, God is clearly revealing something to you. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you. What's he saying? No man gets this on his own. The veil is being torn back. The Father is revealing. John chapter 6. When the Father draws, they come. And Jesus Christ will not lose them. And Jesus is like, the veil is being torn back on this one. He is coming. He is being drawn. And I will not lose him. You are blessed. That's not just in the moment that is talking about an eternity as well. You are blessed. And then notice, when he asked who does he say that he is, Simon's answer was, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so look what Jesus says here. He says, you are blessed, Simon Bar-Jonah. Just so you know, the word bar means son of in the Aramaic. So he's like, you are Simon, son of Jonah. He's like, you are the son of the living God. And he's like, that's right, man. And you are Simon, son of Jonah. Like, it's so true that I'm son of the living God that I'm going to equate it to you, son of Jonah. And just as much as you're son of your father, so I am son of my father. This is an absolute moment where he has said, you better believe that's true. And blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. My Father who is in heaven. And, uh, and this is a huge moment where we are watching the disciples let Peter step to the forefront in leadership and statement about the greatness of Jesus Christ. And we're going to enter into how this all applies to the church on fire, but I'm telling you this, we as a church had better grasp that we need to be Christ-worshipping, christ centered, declaring his value above all else, going after it. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, um, all right, let's just bring it to real terms now. So um, this past week has been a tough week in this community. Uh, there's been a lot going on, and uh, there's been a lot of heartache. And you may or may not have heard about it. 
Now, we had the privilege of meeting somebody named Dylan Bailey um, a number of years ago. My daughter Alyssa and some friends knew him from school, and he was wrestling with uh, cancer. And it was pretty bad. And it got really bad, actually, in its second bout. And uh, we had been talking together and uh, connected up with uh, Julie Locke, who helps run the Dax Foundation. She's here at this church as well. And so we all kind of partnered together. And one thing that Dylan uh, loves to do is laugh and enjoy life. Um, He also loves the bears. Unfortunately, they never win anymore, but he loves the bears. And, uh, and so, you know, we rallied Dylan together along with several others and jumped uh, in a limo and drove up and got to see the bears practice that year, that summer, and uh, get a bunch of signatures. And then afterwards, we uh, took him out to lunch with uh, Charles Tillman and uh, just had a lunch with him. For those of you who don't know, he was an awesome cornerback for the bears and uh, who's no longer with the bears. But um, just a great time there and a sweet moment. Here's one thing I will tell you. Um, Dylan just loved to laugh and smile. He had a joy about him in the midst of this struggle. And it was a hardcore struggle that he had going on, but he was always on the upbeat, always looking for the positive angle on things, just a sweet kid to be around. We spent a, a great day with him there and, and uh, laughed and joked and talked a ton. But I'm telling you this, He had a passion for Jesus Christ that would not stop. And um, his hunger for Christ and his hunger for Christ to be worshipped, as he shared that out in his family in faithfulness, as he shared it out with friends, as he stayed hardcore true to it. Uh, Yeah, he went through a second bout of cancer and came through that. He was actually even able to get back to school a little bit for a while. And uh, and then a third bout of cancer came. And uh, this one was hard and heavy. And uh, Dylan, in the midst of this, struggling and wrestling and constantly making a smile on his face and much about Jesus Christ. And uh, calling his family to it, in fact, ended up staying in the hospital for a number of reasons I won't go into, but just did not want to bring the dark of this thing home in some ways. And uh, this past week, Dylan passed away, 17 years old. And uh, he passed away worshiping Jesus Christ. He passed away with this statement. Man, forget about praying for me. I know where I'm going and I know what's going on. Pray for those around me who don't know Christ. Are you hearing that? Amen. 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 Picture this. Last week, Revelation 5. Throne room. The Father the lamb who is slain, standing in and among them, the 24 elders and the four creatures. And a massive worship is on. Hundreds of millions of angels celebrating around. And Dylan's in it, man. And he's there. Praise be to God. Listen to me. We have to get this square. A church white hot will grasp what eternity is about. A church white hot will know that it is about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Holy One, the Anointed One, who is the Son of the eternal living God. We will worship Him. We will celebrate Him. We will make much of Him. And nothing in this world can even hold a candle 
to the greatness of our Savior. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not even worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. And all of God's people said, we trust in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, our hope, our Savior. He is the Lamb who was slain and is risen. And we cry out and we worship Him with all we've got. Man, know this. Our days are short here on earth. Where's your worship? Make sure you are looking to your king. Hear the teaching of the Father and respond. We need to worship Jesus Christ with all we've got. Don't make it a once a week for a half an hour to an hour and a half while you sort of pay attention in here on Sunday mornings and you're out. In with him. All week long, your Christ being worshipped no matter what the circumstance How can I lift him up? That's what we're being called to. A white hot church will be you on fire for Christ. Christ purposed in everything you're going after. Are you in? If we're going after a white hot church, it's one at a time, each one of us making a decision. So now I'm going to ask you the real question with a real answer. Are you in? May Jesus Christ be worshiped in this place. And all of God's people said, Amen. amen. All right. Point number two. Partner with Jesus who guarantees that he will build his church victoriously. Partner with Jesus who guarantees that he will build his church victoriously. Verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Just so you know, in the original language, his name is Petras, all right? You are Petras, What it actually means is, the word Petros means rock. That's what it means, all right? So he said, and I tell you, you are rock. And on this rock, I build my church, all right? Now, there's been a lot of conversation about what this could mean. And so let's just talk about a few of the options out here, and then I'll tell you where I'm at, all right? So, uh, and on this rock, this rock, which rock? Right? When we use the word this, we have to figure out what it's applying to. Which, which rock, right? And it could mean, some would say, it means Jesus Christ. It could mean it's Jesus Christ. And on Jesus Christ, we will build, that the church will be built, right? It could be like, and you're Peter. And on this rock, right? Like he turns his finger and now points to himself. And on this rock, I will build my church. It could mean that he's doing that. Here's the thing, though. The apostle John doesn't say, and then he pointed to himself. It doesn't, everybody say it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. And in fact, we see some other phrases that come after it that might imply it's something a little different than that. So here's what I will say. I am all for trying to make it much about Christ. Hang on, we're going to get there. We don't need to change what this rock means. We're going to see how it unfolds, all right? So 
Some say it means Christ. I'm not sure I stand there with that. Another would say it could mean it's the testimony. The testimony that Peter just said. He's like, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, on that rock right there, that testimony rock, like that's what we're going to build on. Could mean that. It could mean a testimony piece. Um, However, verse 19 speaks to some privileges he's going to unveil to Peter himself. Okay? So, the third one that it could mean is it could mean Peter. You are Peter, literally. You are rock. And on this rock... Right? And he's talking about Peter, and I think that's what it does mean. We see it for several different reasons. Now, we might want to say, wait a minute. He's saying he's going to build on a man? And aren't there some pretty whacked theologies out there right now using these verses? And yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit, all right? First of all, Ephesians 2.20. You might want to write these verses down. Ephesians 2.20. He says that he's going to build his church, build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. This is Paul writing in Ephesians to build on the apostles and prophets, of which Peter is an apostle, right? To build on the apostles and prophets, but Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. He's like, hey, we're going to build on those who will stand with Christ, apostles and prophets, right? We're going to build on these men as they take their stand for him. And yeah, there's going to be some man that's a part of the foundation, but hear me. Christ Jesus, chief cornerstone, main corner brick laid to set this foundation strong, is Jesus Christ. He is the chief cornerstone. Everybody say, he is the chief cornerstone. That's Jesus, man. Yes, we're making much of Jesus Christ. And yes, we're coming straight out of Ephesians 2 with this. Building on the apostles and prophets, I believe this is exactly an answer to that as he's talking to Peter and telling him he's going to build on them. And, uh, but more than that, we see Peter being built on. We, we see a few statements after it that we're going to look at in just a second, but he's being given keys and authority and privilege. We're seeing it unveiled where he's getting authority, okay? It is going to Peter. And... Uh, Hey, check this out. Your name is Rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Okay. Acts chapter 2. Just a few tens of days later from this, right? And Peter stands up and he is the first to share out as he begins to witness out who Jesus Christ is. And people by the thousands come to trust him as Savior. By the 3,000 people plus trusting Christ that day. And Peter is at the center of it. He's like, you are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And uh, I do believe he's talking about Peter here. I believe he's talking about the apostles and prophets and using them. And how he's going to use their testimony and their strength for Christ to be much for the kingdom. But Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. It is still all about Christ. Okay? That said, a few things that it doesn't say about Peter. This is not saying that Peter's perfect. Where does it say that? This doesn't say, you are rock. And from now on, you will be perfect. Or maybe here's what one faith says. You are rock. And so every time you sit on a certain chair, your decisions will be perfect, 
right? And so the Pope and the Catholic Church does claim perfection in decision in certain moments in time. Where do we see that in Scripture? They try to call out to this passage that it was handed to Peter and from Peter down through, and that becomes the, the line of the Pope, okay? And, and uh, yeah, that's not what it's, everybody say that's not what it's saying. Dude, that's not what it's saying. This is, hear me now, you rock. I'm going to build on you. And later on in Ephesians, broader than just to Peter, to all of the apostles and prophets, we're building on them. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. In Matthew 18, multiple disciples being told the same thing Peter's being told here. This isn't just to Peter, but it is to Peter as well. So here's the deal. Let's do this. Let's throw an image back up here. Let's make sure we understand what's going on. Remember the image we looked at of Caesarea Philippi when we started? Notice how there's some buildings drawn in front of it here, right? So what they did is they went and they looked at the foundations of buildings in front of those caves, and they figured out about how wide and high and whatever it would have been. And these are some artist's renderings of what would have gone on. Remember I was telling you about all the idolatry taking place. So on the far left there, um, the longer one, that is actually a temple that was used for worshiping Baal. And notice the giant cave behind it. That is where they would throw their sacrifices of human beings, mostly of children, in order to try to appease Baal. And the smaller building, that's where Pan was being worshipped. By the way, Pan, Greek god, and uh, this is the god of fear. That's where we get the word panic from, right? And so they would worship this god and try to appease and bring down and calm and satisfy these gods. There was idolatry all over the place and people hanging out. Now get ready. The cave on the far left, that's where some water was pouring out of and it ended up feeding the rivers. And they had a strong belief that where dark caves were and water was, there was a connection between hell and demons rolling out and an effect into this world. Okay? In fact, there was a nickname for that large cave. The nickname for that large cave was the Gates of Hell or the Gates of Hades. This is the place where they would throw in children to satisfy Baal. The belief was Baal would go down to hell through that cave and come back out. And so this was called the Gate of Hades or the Gate of Hell. Hang on, that's going to be really important in just a second. Now you're getting the vision for what's taking place. Look above it. See the rock above? They built all of this on this giant rock. In fact, it had a nickname. It was called the rock. So Jesus has now walked his disciples up to the face of the rock where there has been built much idolatry. And he now points to Peter and he says, you are rock. And on this rock... I will build my church. And look at the next phrase. And the gates of hell will not prevail. It is all about this scene right here. And he's like, get this. You think this is a rock? You're the rock. And you're the rock. And on the apostles and prophets, I will build. And as I build, hear me, I will build my church. Who is doing the building? Jesus Christ. How often do we run church where we will build? Everybody say, that's a failure. failure. Say it bigger. Dude, that is an epic failure. 
It is not about mankind trying to make something happen. Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. We better be in tune with what he's doing, where he's going, and how he's going about it. We better be much about his word as we proclaim the authority of God's word without apology. May it be him who builds the place. And all of God's people said, man, a church that is white hot on fire, Christ is doing the building. I will build my church. And who does the church belong to? Jesus Christ. And uh, who does the church belong to? Man, it's great that we can say, oh yeah, I'm going to my church. And uh, in a a scene of it, in a portion of it, this is where we belong. This is our family. And so we can call it my, but the one who actually owns it, builds it, and runs it is Jesus Christ. Christ purposed from beginning to end. He is doing the building. He has the possessing. And as he now turns to Peter and says, you are rock, forget this rock, you are rock, and on this rock, not that one, on this one right here in front of me, I will build my church. And that cave right there, the gates of Hades, will not prevail against it. There is no evil that can stand against, now hear me. How do gates get used in war? Think about it. Right? You close the gates and you try to keep someone out, right? All too often people quote this phrase, and the gates of hell will not prevail, and they talk about hell attacking and the church somehow defending, and dude, that is not the image here. And the gates of hell will not prevail. There is an entry point and a protection point, and they're putting gates closed, and it will not remain closed. Souls will be saved, lives will be changed, hearts will be turned, this world will become even more glorious one step at a time as Christ shows himself in his church. Man, his church will have the authority and the power to storm the gates of hell. And nothing holds Christ back, nothing As he desires it, so it is. He is pointing to this whole scene behind him. And he is saying, forget about this. This is the darkest place we could come to. And I'm telling you, the church will put this thing pale in comparison. My church that I built will absolutely rock this place. And all of God's people said, man, a white hot church. how often we get caught up in trying to do church when in fact we just need to be worshiping Christ with all we've got and letting him build the church. Be careful. Church is not a list of fake things you do to make it look like you're in. Church is the place where we rally and get sent out from in order to worship Jesus Christ with all we've got. Man, as we come in here, hopefully if you're visiting with us, you've recognized that these songs come unglued with worship, that our preach is deeply passionate as we lift up God's word and say, thus saith the Lord, that we're responding to our King, and then we close with a song that just literally comes unglued for him. 
We are here to worship our Savior. May he be glorified in this place as he builds one heart at a time, one soul at a time, one step at a time. That's our prayer. We are going after Jesus Christ glorified in this place. And uh, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. This is a huge privilege for us to take part with Christ. And um, he then says right after it, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm guessing it's not some physical keys. I'm guessing this is metaphorical. But who knows? Maybe God had a set of keys with him. Christ pulls them out and he hands them over. I don't know what he's doing with it. But he's like, hey, just so you know, the keys of heaven. And I'm like, bottom line, this gives you authority and right and privilege, right? This gives you the, the responsibility of the kingdom of God, of the church itself. This, Peter, you're going to be responsible with us for. And uh, this huge privilege handed over to Peter, this is the phrase of why I think when he says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build. That's why I think it's Peter. Peter. Because he's handing him the keys and he's saying there's going to be authority and responsibility with the church for you. Now check out what it says. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. All right. Here's another phrase we got to work out. Isn't it amazing how many people have gone to these passages and have built up some theology so that they could run off in a direction. And so there are those who would say bind and loose right here. So this is like some statement about demons. And if we bind them, then they're bound, right? And if we loose them, then they're loosed. And uh, I, I don't think that's what it means at all. And uh, here's, here's why. Who wants to loose a demon? If he's bound, can we agree to leave him bound? Do you know what I'm saying? There's a strange logic in that. We're, why would we ever decide to do that? And there's those who like pray to bind Satan. Well, then you shouldn't have to pray for him to be bound again. There's a problem with that application. And if we did, somebody prayed to loose him, stop it, please. Right? Can we not go there? That's not the application of this passage. Literally, if you look at these words underneath, it is declaring what is unlawful and lawful. There's a binding of what's unlawful and what's lawful. What you can be a part of and not a part of. What is a blessing to God and not a blessing to God. How the church will roll out worship. And what it's going to look like, that's probably a better use of this word than understanding that it applies somehow to a demonic prayer element. And uh, probably much more appropriate to be saying, you're going to be running this church. And as you define what is lawful and unlawful, now we have to be very careful about the second half of this. Because our English mind wants to go to cause effect and say, if you define it, then that's the way it's going to be putting Peter in charge of the church. Now check what it says. The keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. If you have the ESV, there's actually a little note on that and it actually says the better phrasing for it, the original language phrasing is will have been bound. Whatever you bind will have been bound. Are you hearing it? 
Whatever you bind, please notice where I'm standing, whatever you bind, like this is no longer, this is not lawful, we're not going this way, right? Will have been before it declared in the heavens as not the way it's heading, and Peter is the mouthpiece speaking it out. That is the best understanding of this original language. And uh, again, there's some twisting of this and some changing of this. The New American Standard has probably the best quoting of it, where it says exactly that, will have been bound, okay? Whatever you bind will already have been bound in heaven, and you're the mouthpiece speaking it out. So it goes like this, Peter, you see this rock? You see this idolatry? Yeah, that's nothing. You are the rock. And I'm going to build on you and on the apostles and prophets around you. I will be the chief cornerstone. And heaven almighty will be declaring out what is lawful and unlawful. And through you, you will be the spokesperson to the church that will lead and guide and direct. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. That's what he's saying. And this is a huge statement about the responsibility of leadership in the church. Our job is not to make stuff up. Our job is not to stir in a way where we think we could get more people in the seats. Everybody say, not that. Our job is not to get more people in the seats. Our job is to be truthful and passionate and worshipful and excited about Christ. And he will stir hearts and do as he sees fit. I will build my church, Christ says. And so we go deep in his word and passionate with our worship. And we watch him do an amazing work. I mean, just look around you, man. This is God stirring this place, for real. Look around you. Just take a look left and right. God's stirring in this place in a huge way. He's building his church. And I am so thrilled and excited to see a Christ-purposed church, right? Now notice this, last phrase. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell everyone that he was the Christ. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. What does it say? He strictly charged them to tell no one that he was the Christ. What? What's going on, man? He just unveils the, all right, boys, we've just gone 32 miles of walking. I know it's been a little arduous. Nice waterfalls, Caesarea Philippi, sin everywhere. Check out the rock, check out the idolatry. Little message of pump for you. I'm going to be doing something in you that blows this away. Shh. Don't tell anyone. (laughs) Why did he do that? Because it was not yet time. Because Christ came to go to the cross. Christ came first to be our Savior, sacrificial lamb on the cross. Christ came first, everybody say first, as sacrificial lamb. And that still had to be done. And if they started selling the Christ statement, the timing was going awry. Hang on. I'm doing something right now, boys. Keep it on the down low. Forever? 
So we read this passage. Should we never tell someone about who Jesus Christ is? Well, let's just do this to close it out. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is Jesus after his death and resurrection, right before his ascension. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He's like, I'm just telling you when the Holy Spirit comes on you, that's when you tell them I'm the Christ. Right? Acts 1.8. I'm unleashing it soon. Right? Hang on. Don't get out ahead of me. Why? Because Acts chapter 1.8 says, wait for the one who actually changes the heart. You know this, right? We carry the message The Holy Spirit changes the heart. Everybody gets that, right? It is not our job to change someone's heart towards God. It is simply our job to be faithful in representing who Jesus Christ is and stand by him. Holy Spirit will make that change as he sees fit, when he sees fit, okay? And he's like, you hang on, you wait for the comforter, you wait for that shepherd, you wait for the Holy Spirit who changes hearts, right? So as the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses Everywhere, right? Locally, regionally, nationally, internationally. Everywhere. Now we jump, Acts chapter 2. This is Peter, just one chapter later. Acts chapter 2, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know. This is towards the end of his speech. Let all the house of Israel know therefore. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter stands up as the rock, the foundation of the church. And in his first message, he says, listen to this. He is the Christ, the one who went to the cross and rose again. You need to know that. Man, they stayed quiet on the whole Christ thing up until the Holy Spirit flooded in and then they unleashed it and 3,000 people were saved that day. Does Jesus Christ know what he's doing? Amen. He knows what he's doing. Hear me. We will be Christ-purposed in all we say and do. And all of God's people said, and that's what we're going after. All right. Let's just get this. Christ-purposed. We have to make this decision as a whole body that he alone is worthy. We have to make this decision individually that he alone is enough. Do you believe that? Jesus Christ, it's enough. Are you living life where it's like Jesus Christ and I need other stuff or else And it is time to set the and down. Jesus Christ alone is enough. Everybody just say, he is enough. He is enough. And we will worship him with all we've got. And all of God's people said, let's pray.